This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit shalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushduni. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Shalcedon Ross House Books. Chapter 4. The Unity of the Polis. Section 1. Greece, the Humanist's Homeland. The importance of Greek thought in Western history cannot be understood by a reading of the works of specialists in the field, because the prevailing approach is neither philosophical nor historical, but religious. A conspicuous example of this is the more learned than wise study of Werner Jaeger, Paideia, the ideals of Greek culture. The majority of scholars turn to Greek culture not for its own sake, but to find a heritage and a homeland to buttress their anti-Christianity. Thus, Greek scholarship is more often autobiography than history. Hence, the inappropriate emphasis of many, and here we can exempt Jager, on Greek rationality, happiness, individualism, secularism and democracy. In attempting to read their modern understanding of these terms into classical Greece, or to derive them from that culture, they are clearly guilty of wishful thinking. Greek culture was clearly and emphatically religious. Its centre of orientation was not the individual and his fulfilment, but rather the city-state and its destiny. And in its emphasis on faith and its long history as a shame culture, classical Greece was closer to the Japan of the Samurais than to modern Western civilization. The concept of the continuity of being was basic to Greek thought, and the line of demarcation between the gods and men was not a difference of being, but a difference of power and station. The gods and men avenged themselves on any who trespassed their honour and position. Hubris, pride, was a sin in that it was a contempt of station and a contempt of a higher dignitary's power and honour. The Greeks also great honours are ascribed in to the Greeks also great honours are ascribed in the history of human thought. Quote, the earliest school of rational thought, it is agreed by all authorities, arose at Miletus in the sixth century BC, end quote, we are told. Another scholar assures us that, quote, the Greeks invented, among other things, science and philosophy. The first scientists and philosophers lived during the 6th century BC on the Greek coast of Asia Minor and in the Greek cities of southern Italy. Later, during the 5th and 4th centuries, the important centre of thought was Athens. It would be an exaggeration to say that before the time of Thales of Miletus, men were incapable of rational thought, but there would be some truth in the statement, since before his time it does not appear that anyone asked those precise questions out of which science and philosophy were to develop. The questions were, what is everything made of? How do things come into being, change and pass away? What permanent substance or substances exist behind appearances? End quote. <clears throat> this is an amazing statement in view, for example, of Egyptian and Babylonian architecture, mathematics and astronomy, and of the civilization of Mohenjo-daro, 
The Minoan culture, which preceded Greek civilization, gives extensive evidence of having reached stages of technological development never approached by the Greeks. Greek science, moreover, involved heavy borrowings from other cultures. Why, then, in view of these well-known facts, are the Greeks given priority in the history of human thought? They were obviously not the equals of their Minoan predecessors. They had a long, ugly history of incessant warfare and persistent tyranny, whereas the Egyptians, Assyrians and Babylonians, to cite but three peoples, made excellent use of their natural resources and gave abundant evidences of scientific management of soil and water, the Greeks rapidly destroyed their future by gutting their country. The forests very, very early were ruthlessly stripped, and the marshes drained, and Greece was reduced to the barren and impoverished land which it, had, which it has remained to this day. The inability of the Greeks to make intelligent use of their natural resources contributed heavily to their decline, and yet they did not lack examples of scientific conservation and the development of natural resources. Why, then, the curious exaltation of Greek science and rationality? Why the ascription of the most desirable qualities in modern culture to a Greek heritage? Section 2. Greek Science and Philosophy the answer appears in Benjamin Farrington, for whom Greek science constitutes a veritable miracle. Greek science did not, in any practical working sense, surpass the science of some other ancient cultures, but what Farrington is looking for is theoretical. Quote, evidence of an attempt to give a naturalistic explanation of the universe as a whole. End quote. And this the other Near Eastern cultures lacked. The originality and scientific aspect of, quote, the Ionian, the Ionian way of thought was that it sought to explain the mysteries of the universe in terms of familiar things, end quote. For Farrington, science is thus more accurately to be defined as materialism, naturalism and humanism, as anthropomorphic thinking, quote, they might be said to have given an operational rather than a rational account of the nature of things. Their criterion of truth was successful practice. The exaltation by them of the practical knowledge contained in the techniques into a method of analysis of natural phenomena was the truly revolutionary step. With the Milesians technology, drove mythology off the field. With the Milesians, technology drove mythology off the field. The central illumination of the Milesians was the notion that the whole universe works in the same way as the little bits of it that are under man's control. The processes men controlled on Earth become the key to the whole activity of the universe. End quote. <coughs> it appears now what constituted Greek philosophy and science. Earlier cultures, in their legal codes, mathematics, and often remarkable calculations, indicated their high order of intelligence and rationality, but they were not scientific because they were not naturalistic. Thus, when Kitto, another worshipper of the Greeks, tells us that they, quote, showed for the first time what the human mind was for, end quote, he contributes nothing to our knowledge of the Greeks, but much to our knowledge of his anti-supernatural, anti-Christian bias, he thus contributes nothing to our knowledge of the Greek mind, but much to our knowledge of his mind. 
While there is an important element of truth in Farrington's thesis, the fact remains that Greek thought was religious and it was esoteric. However, the public philosophy was an exoteric presentation, whereas the hidden truth belonged to the members of the school only. The Greek philosophers were apparent to were apparently the first to teach an exoteric philosophy as a means of enlisting followers into the expert, professional and esoteric school. A man was initiated into a school of thought and its concepts were property, jealously hoarded. This secrecy was both a principle and an early form of copyright and professional unionism. Today, professional, legal, scientific and medical associations form often a closed corporation to protect the initiates of the, of the profession. The protection has passed from the ideas of the profession, of, from the ideas to the profession of the practitioner, and there is often a legally enforced barrier to protect the initiates. Plato's writings give evidence of hidden doctrines, and Farrington himself cites evidence of the same in Aristotle. Quote, when Alexander the Great, whose tutor Aristotle had been, heard a report that the subject matter of the morning lectures had been published, he wrote to his teacher to protest. If you have made public what we have learned from you, how shall we be any better than the rest? Yet I had rather excel in learning than in power and wealth. Aristotle told him not to worry. The private lessons, he wrote, are both published and not published. Nobody will be able to understand them except those who have had the oral instruction. End quote. The religious and the esoteric aspects are pervasive in Greek thought. However, there is some validity to the ascription of naturalism to the Greeks. According to Milanus, the religion of the prehistoric Greeks was a nature creed. For Greek mythology, in the beginning was chaos, yawning void. Out of the chaos came the broad, flat earth, the true mother of, of all things, gods as well as men. The foundations of Greek thought were thus the same as the Egyptian and Babylonian, to name but two, the dialectic of chaos and order, and the concept of continuity. There was a oneness of being in the cosmos, but a difference of power. Pindar stated it clearly in Nemea 6, quote, there is one race of men, one race of gods. Both have breath of life from a single mother. But surrendered power holds us divided, so that the one is nothing, while for the other the brazen sky is established, their sure citadel forever. End quote. <clears throat> the cornerstone of all naturalism is this concept of the continuity of being, and every culture or religion based on that concept is either it implicitly or explicitly naturalistic. Section 3. The Chaos Order Dialectic The Chaos Order Dialectic stands against the background of continuity, so that ultimately the vision is one of unity. Chaos and order represent not an ultimate dualism, but aspects of being and stages of growth. In a sense, chaos, as the womb of being, is the female principle, and order is the male principle. These concepts seem to have governed the Greek sexual outlook. Woman was the ground and the nurse, but not the parent of the seed. Apollo, in the Eumenes of Aeschylus, declared, quote, 
I will tell you, and I will answer correctly. Watch. The mother is no parent of that which is called her child, but only nurse of the new planted seed that grows. The parent is he who mounts. A stranger she preserves. A stranger's seed, if no God interfere. I will show you proof of what I have explained. There can be a father without any mother. There she stands, the living witness, daughter of Olympian Zeus, she who was never fostered in the dark of the womb, yet such a child has no, as no goddess could bring to birth. End quote. For a similar concept of woman, see the laws of Lycurgus. Quote, Lycurgus allowed a man who was advanced in years and had a young wife to recommend some virtuous and approved young man that she might have a child by him who might inherit the good qualities of the father and be a son to himself. On the other side, an honest man who had love for a married woman upon account of her modesty and the well-favouredness of her children might, without formality, beg her, beg her company of her husband that he might raise, as it were, from this plot of good ground, worthy and well-allied children for himself. And indeed, Lycurgus was of a persuasion that children were not so much the property of their parents as of the whole commonwealth, and therefore would not have his citizens begot by first comers, but by the best men that could be found. The laws of other nations seemed to him very absurd and inconsistent, where people would be so solicitous for their dogs and horses as to exert interest and to pay money to procure fine breeding, and yet kept their wives shut up to be made mothers only by themselves, who might be foolish, infirm, or diseased, as if it were not apparent that children of a bad breed would prove their bad qualities first upon those who kept and were rearing them, and well-born children in like manner, their good qualities. These regulations, founded on natural and social grounds, were certainly far from that scandalous liberty which was afterwards charged upon their women that they knew not what adultery meant. End quote. Original creation was from chaos, even as man's first birth is from woman, an inescapable fact. On coming to manhood, however, the male child must purge himself, through rites of initiation and purgation, from femaleness and chaos. Attention was called to this by Jane Harrison. Quote, in the case of the kuros, the child is taken from its mother. In the case of the dithyram, it is actually reborn from the thigh of its father. In both cases, the intent is the same, but in the case of the dithyram, it is far more emphatically expressed. The birth from the male womb is to rid the child from the infection of his mother, to turn him from a woman thing into a man thing. End quote. Homosexuality had an important part in this rebirth and in the education of the reborn. Xenophon declared, I must now speak of pederasty, for it affects education. And Plato, in the Symposium, set this perversion as a ped in a pedagogic in a pedagogical and mystical context. He saw homosexuality, philosophy and gymnastics as inimical to tyranny. According to Marrow, Greek love was to provide classical education with its material conditions and its method. For the men of ancient times, this type of love was essentially educative. Its aim is to educate, as Plato says. 
It was an anti-feminine ideal of complete manliness. It established a closer relationship, according to Plato, than between parents and children, an indication, perhaps, of initiation into a cult. Women were similarly educated into perversions by women, with Sappho an instance of the, te the teaching woman. <coughs> the triumph of order was the goal, and order could beget order, but in the fullest society, chaos was a necessary part of all things and continuous with order. Hence, the truest symbol of perfection was not Zeus as a male god, nor King Zeuses, the ancients used to call their kings, but rather the hermaphrodite. Indeed, hermaphroditism was attributed, quote, to a number of divine beings as one of their several perfections, end quote. It was bound up with human aspirations to perpetual life. As a result, Zeus himself was portrayed as a hermaphrodite. Chaos, according to Rufinus, quote, caused to emanate from himself a double form androgynous made by the conjunction of opposites, end quote. To simulate the perfection of androgynous being, women in ancient mysteries assumed male dress or wore a beard, and men castrated themselves in terms of this same perfection. Quote, the bisexuality of the philosophers amounts to asexuality. Spiritual man is completely freed from the bonds of the flesh. End quote. The hermaphrodite ideal of perfection entered deeply into Gnostic thought and into the Talmud, which, quote, drew the doctrine of primitive humanity as bisexual, which passed into Jewish mysticism as well as into Arab es esotericism, in which the unity, Adam-Eve, represents universal man, end quote. There are connections between the concept of androgyny as perfection and the religious myth or performance of incest. Section 4. The Esoteric State Out of chaos comes the androgyn, and, according to Plato in the Symposium, out of the splitting of the androgyn come the sexes, and whether a man is a lover of men or of women depends on what part of Quote, that double nature which was once called androgynous, end quote, they are derived from. Quote, human nature was originally one, and we were whole, and the desire and pursuit of the whole is called love, end quote. <clears throat> the polis, or Greek city-state, has often been called a men's club, and with reason, because in its gymnastics, games, music and political order, it was a brotherhood of initiates into a divine wholeness. The city was a holy sanctuary, a sacred enclosure around an altar, the religious abode of gods and citizens. The real religion of the 5th century was a devotion to the city itself, to the wholeness and unity it represented. Divinity could reside in men, an opinion held by Aristotle and Plato, and claimed for himself by Empedocles. Scholars have attempted to give noble reasons for the durability of the ancient city-state. The Greeks themselves saw the homosexual aspect as a binding quality, as Moreau has pointed out. The city-state was an esoteric, mystical and divine body with a kind of androgynous wholeness, and the religion of the city-state was basically a fertility cult. 
Justice was defined as the law of the city. According to Antiphon the Sophist, probably of Athens in the latter half of the 5th century BC, quote, Justice, then, is not to transgress that which is the law of the city in which one is a, a citizen, end quote. There was thus no element of transcendence. No justice existed beyond the city-state because it was an entity with wholeness. According to Diogenes of Apollonia, from the same period as Antiphon the Sophist, quote, To sum up the whole matter, all existing things are created by the alteration of the same thing, and are the same thing, end quote. As a result, each city-state was in a sense a cosmos unto itself, with the full spectrum of being from gods to man and to the very earth, so that it was a unity against an outer and an inner chaos and an order for the continuing mastery and use of chaos. Because it was a mystical wholeness, its religion, law and philosophy were naturally esoteric, in their, es in their essence meant for the inner circle. As a result, because the modern Enlightenment mind is insistent upon a neutral rationality, it quietly bypasses such an earnest, such earnest aspects of Pythagoras' teaching as the injunction, do not eat beans, and the declaration of Empedocles, riches, utter riches, keep your hands from beans. Section 5. The polis as cosmos. <coughs> Cosmos means order, and the city-state represented order in a wholeness due to its status as the mystical bond of heaven and earth. The polis, or city-state, wholly comprehended man's life until mystical thought made for ascetic withdrawal. According to Jager, quote, The centre of gravity of Greek life lies in the polis. Thus, to describe the Greek polis is to describe the whole of Greek life, end quote. It means, therefore, to describe its theology and ethnics as well. Whatever helps the community is good, whatever injures it is bad. The city-state was thus itself the cosmos, the order of being. Earlier, as Fustel de Coulanges in The Ancient City has pointed out, Greek culture was oriented to the family, and the basic religion was the family as the mystical bond of heaven and earth as the cosmos. The family gave way to the polis, the city-state, as the true cosmos, and law was an expression of the nature of that cosmos. The city-state was an organic and religious entity. What fascism tried very faintly to do, to create a sense of the unity of the people of the state, Greece had in full measure. Because the city-state embraced the full spectrum of being in continuity, it included not only men and gods, but also athletes, leaders and heroes who could become, in some sense, divine. Since being was seen as continuous, an elite could embody divinity or wisdom. Socrates clearly believed in his divine inspiration, and Plato, in The Republic, not only saw his philosopher philosopher kings and elite as wise, but also held that knowledge is infallible. The wholeness of the city-state made it the locale of the eliteness of being, and when the city-state became an empire, it was the elite community governing the world, true order bringing chaos into fructifying submission. 
the United Nations today is the heir of this ancient city-state elitist concept. Both Plato and Aristotle held, quote, that the polis should be economically self-sufficient. To them, autarchia, self-sufficiency, is almost the first law of its existence. They would practically abolish commerce, end quote. Being a cosmos, this was a philosophical necessity. Anaximander held the cosmos to be a vast community to which the gods, as well as man, belonged, and Heraclitus stated that, quote, the cosmos is the same for all, and that neither one of the gods nor of men has made it, but that it always that but that it was always. End quote. Chaos, seen by Aristotle as the unrealized possibilities of matter, required the action of order to realize itself. According to one cult, the evil titanic element in every man's soul, and by analogy in the body politic, must be subjected to the divine Dionysian urge for order, deliverance and salvation. Achilles, in the Oresteia, depicted justice as the move from chaos to order. The Furies still moved in terms of ancient family law as the principle of order and demanded vengeance, but in the Eumenides, the Furies transfer the framework of order from the family to the polis and to the gods of the younger generation. <coughs> they become Eumenides, kindly ones, and the polis emerged... Quote, as the pattern of justice, of order, of what the Greeks called cosmos, the polis, they saw, was or could be the very crown and summit of things. End quote. The Furies demanded definite powers before making the transfer, and Athene declared, No household shall be prosperous without your will. When the, quest, when the question was raised, You guarantee such honour for, for the rest of time? Athene answered, I have no need to promise what I cannot do. A hint of the basic Greek pessimism with its cyclic view of history. Until that turn of history, however, it was believed that the prosperity and life of the people depended upon the total order of the state. Against this state or cosmos, there was no appeal, no higher law. Man's only recourse was either to be an outlaw or to join another cosmos, another city-state, and hence the readiness of many political losers in Athens, for example, to join with honour an enemy state. Their lives required a religion and a cosmos, and if Athens cut them off, it was necessary to become member of another body. Section 6. The One and the Many the Greek approach to the problem of the one and the many rested on this background of a chaos-order dialectic set in the context of the continuity concept. Both the early monists and the pluralists accepted this framework. They did not essentially alter the ideas of the original form of things, but they raised the question of centrality. What was wanted was an intellectual Archimedean lever for the universe. The monists first addressed themselves to this question. Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes of the Milesian school, Xenophanes of Colophon, Ilia, 
Parmenides and Zeno of the Eleatic school, Eleatic school and Heraclitus at Ephesus. The Milesians assumed, first, one unchanging cosmic substance at the basis of the changes of nature, and second, that moving matter is living matter. Xenophanes dealt with the first premise, as did the Eleatics, while Heraclitus accepted only the second. For Heraclitus, 530-470 BC, change is the key and the reality. All things are in process of becoming and are continually in motion, passing away. It is not possible to step twice into the same river. Rest is in change, for all things flow and all things are one. Reality is thus a perpetual becoming, energy in motion. Thus the sum in size, the breadth of a man's hand, is new each day. Fire steers the universe. Change is the harmonious interaction of opposites as a closed circle, and a continuing and continuous dialectic. Quote, God is day-night, winter-summer, war, peace, satiety, famine. End quote. This dialectical tension is the true God. War is both king of all and father of all, and the hidden harmony is stronger or better than the visible. That which is in opposition is in concert, and from things that differ comes the most beautiful harmony. Thus, a dialectical tension and a kind of relativity are basic to Heraclitus. Chaos and order are necessary, one to another and male to female. This is the tension and motion which constitutes reality. For Parmenides of Elia, 515-440 BC, Identification of the cosmic substance was the key. This cosmic substance is being, which is the same as thought. For it is the same thing to think and to be. Moreover, quote, one should both say and think that being is, for to be is possible, and nothingness is not possible. Being has no coming into being and no destruction. How could being perish? How could it come into being? End quote. Furthermore, being is motionless and it is spatial, so that being is not only thought, but it is also at the same time matter. Heraclitus eliminated permanence and Parmenides eliminated change. For Heraclitus, there was only process, but the process had a unity, a rhythmical law. To know justice, we must have injustice. All things are relative and hence dialectical. For Parmenides, being is an eternal, finite, motionless and spherical solid body. The famous illustrations of Zeno, such as the flying arrow that remained at rest, were designed to demonstrate the truth of Parmenides' system. However naturalistic their presuppositions were, these men were not scientific in their concern. Rather, it was the theology of politics which concerned them. They were interested in the nature of the cosmos and the key or lever to its government. For Heraclitus, the world is governed by a logos, a reason, a law, and this is the fire itself. According to Plato, Parmenides and Zeno, according to Plato, Parmenides and Zeno sought to disapprove the existence of the many. For him, being had to be one and homogeneous. 
Because of this pantheistic oneness of all being, one can perhaps assume that Parmenides may have been favourable to an equalitarian and democratic order. There is perhaps a curious hint of this in fragment 18. Quote, when a woman and a man mix the seeds of love together, the power of the seeds which shapes the embryo in the veins out of different blood can mould well-constituted bodies only if it preserves proportion. For if the powers war with each other when the seed is mixed and do not make a unity in the body formed by the mixture, they will terribly harass the growing embryo through the twofold seed of the two sexes. End quote. The being of Parmenides was equal throughout, without origin and without a future. Such a being had no future, nor did such a philosophy. The pluralists offered another answer. Empedocles at Agrigentum, or Acragus, Anaxagoras at Clasimene, the later Pythagoreans at Thebes mainly, and Leucippus at Abdera. The pluralists assumed a permanence which became transposed rather than transformed. For Empedocles, 495 to 435 BC, there were four elements, fire, air, water and earth. <clears throat> and strife and love, repulsion and attraction were responsible for change and motion. History is therefore cyclical, as strife and love create first, an era in which love reigns and all elements are totally mixed and indistinguishable, second, the era in which strife enters and the elements are separated, although with freakish combinations at times, third, strife triumphs and the four elements are totally separate and life, as in the first era, is impossible, fourth, love invades the separated elemental world and the resulting, resultant mingling again produces life. According to Empedocles in fragment 8, there is no birth nor death of substances, but only mixing and exchange, and substance is the name applied to the combination. The elements are uncreated. Empedocles thus has a pluralism of elements and a unity of process because of the eternal and continuous tension of love and strife, attraction and repulsion. Love produces a chaos of undifferentiated mixture, Strife produces an order of sterile differentiation, and life is an impossibility under either total chaos or total order. The dialectical tension of the two is a necessity for life. Anaxagoras, 500-428 BC, insisted on pluralism, but with a required unity. He refused to limit the number of elements to four, but he also insisted that, quote, in everything there must be everything. It is not possible for them to exist apart, but all things contain a portion of everything. End quote. According to Warner, quote, he held the view that matter is a continuum, in, infinitely divisible, and that however much it may be divided, each part will contain elements of everything else. End quote. How could this chaos of matter, infinitely divisible yet continuous, produce anything? To introduce motion, growth, and change, Anaxagoras po posited a nous, or mind, as a, a physical element, which is infinite and self-ruling and is mixed with no thing, but is alone by itself. Order is thus joined chaos to make life possible. 
This dialectical tension of chaos and order, or matter and mind, form or idea, continued to assert itself. The later Pythagoreans tended to fix this tension into a dualism. Pluralism in the form of atomism ostensibly came into its own with Democritus of Abderk, 460-370 BC, who, we are told, interpreted reality mechanically rather than teleologically, in terms of atoms and the void, with worlds forming as atoms collide. <coughs> the result, however, is the same. Relativism and a cyclical teleology is ultimately as relativistic as a mechanical atomism. For Democritus, quote, we know nothing in reality, for truth lies in an abyss, end quote, fragment 117. The facts and truths of men are conventions. Quote, colour exists by convention, usage, sweet by convention, bitter by convention, end quote, fragment 125. This same statement, found also in fragment 9, continues. Quote, Atoms and void, alone, exist in reality. We know nothing accurately in reality, but only as it changes according to the bodily condition, and the constitution of those things that flow upon the body and impinge upon it. End quote. Knowledge is thus, in the main, a knowledge of phenomena. However, according to fragment 34, Man is a universe in a little microcosm. Reality, then, appears to be not only atoms and the void, but also man, the little cosmos, a walking order. Democritus, therefore, favoured democracy, fragment 251, and his democracy was by implication not only political, but also moral, with every man a walking law unto himself. Apparently, for Democritus, women were not a microcosm, but perhaps a void. Quote, a woman must not practice argument. This is dreadful. End quote. Fragment 110. Quote, to be ruled by a woman is the ultimate outrage for a man. End quote. Fragment 111. The basic reason is that, quote, rule belongs by nature to the stronger. End quote. Fragment 267. Slaves were to be used as parts of the great body, fragment 270, fun functionally, and women were also functional in their nature. Man was the social atom, and his desires the social law. Section 7. Socrates and Plato. The political focus of philosophy appeared more clearly in Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, where we have more documentation of their positions. Socrates, a status and a homosexual, is the object of the most appalling idolatry. Croner, in reading Plato's dialogues, is reminded of the gospel stories. He agrees with Justin Martyr in comparing Christ with Socrates. Indeed, quote, Socrates was a Greek anticipation and counterpart of Jesus Christ. But one has to remember that such a Greek Christ was no Christ at all. Nevertheless, the human features of the two personalities can be compared without blasphemy. End quote. For Vujelin, quote, the life and death of Socrates were the decisive elements in the discovery and liberation of the soul. End quote. Some scholars have been ready to point out, however, that Socrates was guilty as charged and merited the sentence of death. 
Socrates was a champion not of the rights of man, but the rights of Superman. And his circle of friends and disciples were close to or involved in the imposition of a reign of terror in Athens four years prior to Socrates' condemnation. Basic to his trial, although Plato did not mention it, was the political issue. Socrates expressed his contempt for the Athenian jury, comparing them to children tying a doctor on a cook's charges. Trying a doctor on a cook's charges. The esoteric background is close to the surface in Socrates, who in the Symposium, according to Fight, finds, quote, the key to the universe in the fact of boy love or pederasty, end quote. Plato shared the same opinion most of his life, only dropping it to a measure in his old age in The Laws. Discussions of Plato usually concentrate on the Platonic doctrine of ideas or forms, and the result is a serious distortion because central to Plato is not the doctrine of ideas, but his concept of the city-state, of which the ideas are simply a central aspect. In Plato's Gorgias, quote, some wise men tell us that friendship and community and orderliness, cosmioles, and moderation bind together heaven and earth, gods and men, and that this whole is therefore called order, cosmos, not disorder, acosmia, end quote. The cosmos is a community of gods and men, and the city-state is such a cosmos. It embraces both the human and the divine, both matter and form, and controlled both chaos and order. Form, idea, order, mind, and the, and the divine are related, if not basically one. Justice is the subjection of all things to this divine human order, and liberty is therefore the negation of justice. The guardians, or elite, of the state represent godlike wisdom, and they must be obeyed. The citizens must be educated into accepting this wisdom of the elite as their own mind in order to obey voluntarily, but if not, it must be imposed from without. Quote, then, in order that such a person may be governed by an authority similar to that by which the best man is governed, do we not maintain that he ought to be made the servant of that best man in whom the divine element is supreme? We do not indeed imagine that the servant ought to be governed to his own detriment, which Thrasymachus held to be the lot of the subject. On the contrary, we believe it ought to be better for everyone to be governed by a wise and divine power, which ought, if possible, to be seated in a man's own heart, the only alternative being to impose it from without, in order that we may be all alike, so far as nature permits, and mutual friends from the fact of being steered by the same pilot. End quote. <clears throat> Justice, for Plato, means that in the individual, reason rules over the will and the appetites, and in the body politic, it is the rule by the philosopher king over all other men. Quote, Justice is produced in the soul, like health in the body, by establishing the elements concerned in their natural relations of control and subordination, whereas injustice is like disease and means that this natural order is inverted. End quote. 
There is thus no transcendental justice, no appeal beyond the guardian dictatorship which, in its person, incarnates the divine wisdom and the idea of justice. This is clearly demonstrated in the concept of truth. Since the state is the ultimate order, it stands above law. Men are responsible to the state, not the state to its citizens. Truth and falsehood are held to be only instrumental, comparable to medicine, and hence, quote, must be kept in the hands of physicians, and unprofessional men must not meddle with it, end quote. These physicians who use truth and falsehood as social medicines are the rulers of the state. Quote, to the rulers of the state, then, if to any, it belongs of right to use falsehood to deceive either enemies or their own citizens for the good of the state. End quote. The good of the state, as seen by its rulers, is the highest law, and this means that the rulers are the embodiment of that law, or at the least, its source of expression. Seen thus in the perspective of Plato, which is the perspective of the city-state, the basic ideas are philosopher kings, guardians or dictators, quote, in whom the divine element is supreme, end quote, as Socrates believed concerning himself. Men in whom, to use Cornford's translation, a power of godlike wisdom resides. Anaxagorchus held that mind was the physical element in the universe and the principle of order. Anaxagoras. The young Socrates read Anaxagoras with the enthusiasm and then disappointment, for his noose or mind promised much but stopped short of fulfilment. The Platonic idea, derived in part from Socrates, was more than matter. It was a kind of structure. It was order, soul and universal. It was the one against or over the many, but it was clearly, above all else, the elite and ruling body of the Republic. The ideas of Plotinus cannot be read back into Plato. For Plato, the ideas are supremely manifested in the guardians. In them, the order of being is manifested. To the extent that their ideas are bypassed and the state is threatened with chaos, for they are the order of the state. Plato's Republic, in attaining its main purpose and function, justice, does not abolish war, nor is the abolition of war even hinted at. Economic self-sufficiency is required, but the abolition of poverty is not promised and luxury is definitely condemned. In terms of modern utopias, the Republic indeed promises very little because its concept of utopia is not the material fulfilment of the people, but total government by the elite. Dictatorship by the intellectuals is, in fact, both the goal and the product of the Republic and its greatest appeal to the modern academian. Academician. The realisation of the idea of justice, then, and the realisation of every idea means the triumph of the central idea, guardianship, as the principle of order and oneness. Socrates, according to Plato, had declared, quote, And if I find any man who is able to see a one and many in nature, him I follow and walk in his footsteps as if he were a god. End quote. Socrates and Plato thus summoned men to follow them, because the Republic was their vision of the answer. More specifically, as Vujlin points out, 
The true philosophers see the one in the many, and this one clearly is the philosopher-ruler. The Republic needs no laws, no legal code of justice, because the Guardians are the walking law, the idea incarnate. As Willoughby observes, quote, Plato's Republic is, therefore, to be a state without laws, one governed entirely by special ordinances issued by its rulers as occasion for them arises, end quote. In every age, whether, whenever and wherever these esoteric guardians arise, they are hostile to law because they themselves are the truest idea of law. Plato only wrote his laws in his old age as a suggestion for the second best state and its society, and it is a society designed to be a palatable stepping stone to the best. For Plato, ethics and politics were essentially the same, and if virtue is political, how else can it best manifest itself than in rulers who have knowledge and can best institute order? We say that the one and many are identified by the reasoning power, and all things which are supposed to exist draw their existence from the one and many, and have the finite and infinite in them as part of their nature. The goal of education is to understand the harmonious order, or cosmos, of the whole world, and the goal of justice and the state is to attain that order, and the Republic is the model of that order. The Guardians indeed shall strive to set their country free, but this freedom from foreign powers, not the freedom of the people, is to be a free state, not a free people. Because education was seen as conditioning, the environment had to be totally controlled, and art was part of that environment. Death was the lot of the physically unfit, and children born without license should be disposed of. The Guardians had to live under a material and sexual communism, and this was, in the laws, recommended for all men as the ideal state. For Plato, consent of the governed meant that their best interests were served by the Guardians. They became masters of themselves only when the Guardians governed them totally and prevented the base nature of the people from prevailing. Quote, Do you see that this state of things will exist in your commonwealth where the desires of the inferior multitude will be controlled by the desires and wisdom of the superior few? Hence, if any society can be called master of itself and in control of pleasures and desires, it will be ours. End quote. Much has been said about the failure of the Greek city-states to unify, and yet the central point has been missed, despite the historical evidence. The Greek city-states, except briefly and to meet a military crisis, could not unify. Their idea of unity came too close to obliteration, and when applied at home, consistently meant social unrest. When applied to another state, it meant virtual death for that state. As a result, they fought until they all fell. Section 8. Aristotle. We have noted in Aristotle's reply to Alexander the Great his own esoteric orientation, and his works are often difficult because of their deliberate vagueness and circumlocution. This is usually dismissed by scholars as a problem of style, but Aristotle had no difficulty in writing plainly and directly when he so chose. Aristotle be began as a disciple of Plato, but he later withdrew from some of the implications of that position.
His orientation, however, is no less status. The state is his cosmos. As Kitto notes, when Aristotle speaks of man as a political animal, what Aristotle really said is, man is a creature who lives in a polis, and what he goes on to demonstrate in his politics is that the polis is the only framework within which man can fully realise his spiritual, moral and intellectual capacities. Basic to Aristotle is the oneness of being and unity. Unity is nothing distinct from being. Moreover, no universal exists in separation apart from its particulars. There is a continuity of being, and the divine pervades the whole of nature. There is a great chain of being, and, quote, the matter of everything, and therefore of substance, must be that which is potentially of that nature, end quote. It follows then, quote, if, as we said, the matter of each thing is that which it is potentially, for example, the matter of actual fire is that which is potentially fire, then the bad will simply be the potentially good, end quote. It follows, therefore, that man is totally comprehended in terms of an imminent structure of continuous being, and that whatever he is potentially, that he can become actually only within the framework of that structure, the state. Thus, ethics or morality is a branch of political or social science and no other. Anaxagoras had, a, had posited a noose or mind as a physical entity and a mechanical device to make possible motion, growth and change. Aristotle's God or first cause or prime mover is a similar mechanical device. If causes were infinite in number, then knowledge of causes and knowledge itself would be impossible. But the function of this first cause is to guarantee knowledge, not to provide it. Things are still to be understood in terms of the continuum, not by reference to a first cause. Thus we are told in both ethics and politics, man is a social or political animal. For Aristotle, as with Plato, Justice has an exclusively socio-political meaning. Quote, For to do justice is to have more than one ought, and to suffer it is to have less than one ought. End quote. Justice is a mean, not in relationship to extremes, but as a permanent attitude of the soul toward the means. The appointment of property is the illustration used to define justice. Quote, what he, the just man, will do is to give each his proportionately equal share, whether he is himself one of the parties or not. End quote. There is no transcendence here. Justice is within the framework of nature, which the Christian, unlike Aristotle, holds to be fallen, and the high point of order and justice is within and justice within nature is the state. Men, of course, can become gods by sheer nobility of character and there is an element of divinity in all men. Quote, if the intellect is divine compared with man, the life of the intellect must be divine compared with the life of a human creature. And we ought not to listen to those who counsel us, O man, think as man should, and, O mortal, remember your mortality. Rather, ought we, so far as in us lies, to put on immortality and to leave nothing unattempted in the effort to live in conformity with the highest thing within us? End quote. Intellectual activity forms perfect happiness for a man, 
because it lives in terms of something divine within us, a divine particle. Aristotle, however, did not directly identify this life of intellect, this realised life, with politics. And he did recognise that, in a natural sense, quote, Nature has made man even more of a pairing than a political animal, in so far as the family is an older and more fundamental thing than the state. End quote. The purpose of marriage is not only procreation, but also quote, to provide whatever is necessary to a fully lived life end quote, by a division of labours by man and wife. The priority of the family is a natural and historical rather than an ethical one, and the true realm of intellect is the state. Hence, it is the state which best educates for goodness, and the legislator must mould his will to the frames of newly born children. The right to live, as well as the right to educate, belongs to the state, which should limit its population. Quote, as to the exposure and rearing of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live, but that on the ground of an excess in the number of children, if the established customs of the state forbid this, for in our state population has a limit, no child is to be exposed, but when couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. What may or may not lawfully be done in these cases depends on the question of life and sensation. End quote. Families, children, people, all are the property of the state, and the citizen should be moulded to suit the form of government under which he lives. Lest any misunderstand him, Aristotle stated plainly, quote, Neither must we suppose that any one of the citizens belongs to himself and the care of each part is inseparable from the care of the whole, end quote. Like the whole of man's life, quote, that education should be regarded by law and should be an affair of state is not to be denied, end quote. The state is the highest community and embraces all the rest, aims at good in a greater degree than any other and at the highest good. The state is thus man's true church and his basic religious institution for Aristotle. It is man's saviour and his order of salvation. Although the family has a biological priority, philosophically, quote, the state is by nature clearly prior to the family and to the individual, since the whole, of ne since the whole is of necessity prior to the part. End quote. And, quote, justice is the bond of men in states. For the administration of justice, which is the determination of what is just, is the principle of order in political society. And quoted later, the end of the state is the good life. End quote. But we can as easily say that the good life for Aristotle is life within the state, for his state is man's only true God and church. Aristotle, perhaps partly for political as well as for personal reasons, is fearful of the radical communistic order of Plato's Republic, which creates in the state, quote, such a degree of unity as to no longer be a state, for the nature of the state is to be a plurality, end quote, in unity. His purpose in calling for some plurality is to further the desired self-sufficiency, Aristotle is for a totalitarian but non-communist state, and his arguments against communism in property 
and women are based on practical rather than moral and religious considerations. The state, quote, should be united and made into a community by education, end quote. The socialism of Aristotle is thus neither material nor martial, or, or marital, but rather educational. Man himself is to be socialised, quote, for it is not the possessions but the desires of mankind re which require to be equalised, and this is impossible unless a sufficient education is provided by the laws, end quote. To understand what a state is, we must know what the citizen is, and the citizen is one who... Quote, shares in the administration of justice and in offices, end quote. But, quote, we cannot consider all those to be citizens who are necessary to the existence of the state, end quote. Quote, we maintain that the true forms of government are three, and that the best must be that which is administered by the best, and in which there is one man or a whole family or many persons excelling all the others together in virtue, and both rulers and subjects are fitted, the one to rule and the others to be ruled, in such a manner as to attain the most eligible life. We showed at the commencement of our inquiry that the virtue of the good man is necessarily the same as the virtue of the citizen of the perfect state. Clearly then, in the same manner, and by the same means through which a man becomes truly good, he will frame a state that it is to be ruled by an aristocracy or by a king, and the same education and the same habits will be found to make a good man and a man fit to be a statesman or a king. End quote. This is Aristotle's good state, but since the state is the highest order of being, the good state is really what its philosophers declare it to be. There is no true transcendence. Aristotle's definitions of things are pragmatic. Virtue is a mean, and therefore, the life which is in a mean, and in a mean attainable by every one, must be best. It is this pragmatism which requires a balance and a pluralism in Aristotle's state, not a matter of ultimate principle. And because Aristotle lacked a doctrine of man in the biblical sense, man as covenant-breaker, he hoped that self-interest would lead man to the rational choice of a pragmatically sound social order. Aristotle was philosophically committed to the ultimacy of the one. He hoped pragmatically to provide a place for the many. It was the power of the one which men best learned from Aristotle. De Gaulle has stated, and Max Lerner has assented, that, quote, at the root of Alexander's victories, one will always find Aristotle. End quote. In Aristotle's world, there was no appeal to a transcendental justice or law. His universe was not the creation of God, nor was his God man's maker. Rather, man posited a prime mover simply to guarantee the validity of his own independent knowledge. Man was thus God's maker, and God was a logical concept, not a reality. As Cornelius Van Til has noted, Quote, it remains to be proved that any one of the Greeks ever thought of the universe as God's creation. The term creation is used to be sure, but the connotation of the term creation in Greek philosophy is always determined by the fact that the universe is thought of as having an eternal or semi-eternal existence alongside the existence of God. And if such is the creation concept of Greek thought, 
it is impossible that the imminence of God in the universe could mean anything else than a sort of identity with the universe. The God of Greek philosophy is either exclusively deistic or exclusively pantheistic. End quote. As Van Til notes further, quote, God would not be truly independent of the world unless the world were dependent upon God. No one is absolutely independent unless he alone is independent. There cannot be two absolutely independent beings. End quote. For the Greeks, the state was the highest order of being and man's truest life. The state was a human divine order in which the truth and oneness of being was most fully incarnated. Salustius, who is cited together with Julian the Apostate by Gilbert Murray as the last protesting voice of the Greek tradition, tradition declared that the rulers are analogous to reason. This was a very extensive this was to a very extensive measure the first and last voice of Greek philosophy. <coughs> Bauer, while seeing in it but while seeing it in part as a denial of the whole Greek conception of man, cites another symbolic act in the decline of the Greek tradition. The ambitious Greek monarch of Egypt Cleopatra, in her last hours, quote, clothed herself in her royal robes and put to her breast the asp, minister of the sun god Re, that she might be joined with him, her father, in death, end quote. But in spite of Bower's qualification, the Greek state had no other destiny unless it denied itself. Cleopatra, on giving birth to Ptolemy Caesar by Julius Caesar, was in 46 BC hailed as the mother of Ra, when her three-year-old son was raised to share her throne, he was called Ptolemy Caesar, God, and beloved son of his father and mother. The rulers were analogous to reason and were the only effective gods Greek faith afforded. For the state and the rulers to act in terms of their inherent divinity was, in terms of Greek philosophical premises, an intellectual and political necessity. The only alternative to this divine unity under the ruler was the anarchy of Diogenes and the mystics, every man his own god and his own cosmos. Their only unity could be under a divine human monarch's order, and their only particularity could be in the chaos of anarchy. The two roads of Greek philosophy led equally to ruin. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.